I'm going to go ahead and read our passage. We are reading tonight from um, the book of Acts from the beginning of chapter 1 and also the beginning of chapter 2. So um, Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then also from chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're starting a new series tonight. It's called Collision Course. And the reason why is after Jesus is crucified and the scriptures say he is raised up, he leaves. And the big question is, well, then what next? Because he's not here anymore. Is he still doing work? Where is he? What's he doing? What does that mean for us? Are we orphans now? Just left to figure it out. Well, what happens is he unleashes his spirit in this world. And this just tidal wave of renewal and restoration and recreation, like Genesis kind of creation, begins to envelop the whole world and the people in it. It'll take a semester to unpack what I just said. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's start small. Let me pray and we'll talk about what Casey read. Lord Jesus, I feel what I just said to my friends here that the best thing that I have going for me and the best thing they have going for them is that you're alive, that you're not a dead, revered historical figure, but that you are alive tonight and at work and that you are kind and good and gracious and mobile. So I hitch my wagon to that hope too, just as I know they do. I'm very aware of how weak I am and how weak my words are. So Holy Spirit, would you come and let your power fall upon this room and the people in it, as you did on the day we read about earlier. Be with us, we pray in your name. Amen. A year and a half ago, my wife and family and I moved back to Athens. We'd been gone 10 years. And I was sitting in the back, and it was my first night kind of giving a message here uh, at RUF. I was a student in RUF. I was an intern here for a while, and I'd been gone a decade. So it was kind of a significant moment, and my mind was all over the place as we were singing the last song, and I walked up this aisle and came up here. 
And as I was walking, I didn't prepare this, but I'm walking up here and I'm thinking pretty much every major event in my life, except for my birth and being raised, happened in these four walls. Uh, God turned my life upside down in this room and I first saw him as he is. I met my wife in this room. I had an awkward four-year friendship with my wife in this room. I put, I put the final secrets of my life that I'd never shared with anybody. I put, I put them in front of others in this room. I married my wife in this room. I preached my first sermon in this room. But then more recently, I've also been having these memories come back of how scared I've also been inside of this room in your seats. There was a time when um, RUF, our mercy ministry, the, uh, the service that we were doing at the time was uh, tutoring um, some kids in this area and kind of helping improve reading scores and test scores. And they do it back here every Thursday night at like six o'clock. And I was, I'd had some fraternity brothers inviting me to RUF for years. And I always had a plausible, in my estimation, a plausible excuse of why I was busy and couldn't go. The real reason I was not going to go is I didn't know anybody here. And I was not going to walk into a room like this with nobody that I knew. And so I'd, I'd pedal off different excuses and why I was busy and couldn't go. I really wished I could. I'm sorry. But I started coming around the end of my senior year when God really started to kind of open my eyes to some stuff. And I got to meet people. And it was great. I, I loved the people that I met. So then I start coming around a little bit more. And I decide I want to get involved. I want to serve. I want to do stuff. So I tell them I'll help you tutor. So it's a Thursday evening. And I drive up in my truck. And I sit in my truck and I never get out of my truck because I freak out. And I'm like, I just, I don't know these people. I don't know the people inside of that room. And this doesn't feel safe. And I left twice, two weeks in a row. I pulled, I, I drove all the way here and I drove all the way home. The third week I got courageous enough to get out of my car and go look through the windows over there. And then I left the third time. You're a little more mature than me, perhaps. Than I was at that time, but what I was terrified about at the core was being seen as weak, which you are a little bit if you're the new guy there, right? Or the new girl. You felt it maybe when you walked in the room tonight, or you've been, you freshmen have been doing new stuff. Everything you do is new. You don't know anybody. And so you just feel exposed and vulnerable. Like if there's a pause, am I going to have someone to talk to? Or am I going to get the fake text at that moment and like be busy on my phone? We, we cringe in moments of weakness. We, you fear them just like I do, being seen as weak, but you hate other people's weak moments as much as your own weak moments. Have you ever seen like that Instagram post that's like, it's a good 12 or 14 hours old and it still only has three or four likes and you're not going to like it. And the reason why is you don't want to be associated with the weakness of that post. And someone's like, who are the four people who like this? It's been up here three days. Oh, that guy? That's how I think. I hope I'm not alone or I'm going to feel really bad tonight. <laughs> we cringe in moments of weakness. I no more want to give a weak message than you want to hear a weak message, right? We are so averse to weakness. We're scared of it. We avoid it. We have to go with our squad everywhere we go so that we won't be alone and be exposed in it. And we've been discipled since we were little boys and girls. We've been discipled by everybody, society, culture, friend groups, coaches, parents. 
And that that discipleship sounds like a steady drumbeat of just power through it. Just get it together. Flee the slightest sniff of weakness. UGA gets on board with this all the time. You can change the world or you should change the world as if that's not the weight of the world on your shoulders is pressure. The world won't change if you don't do it. We are coached to be strong and we are coached to think that weakness is an obstacle. It is a no man's land. It is a, it is a wilderness where nothing good ever happens. So don't let yourself get into it is what we begin believing. The problem is this. You know the problem, right? You can't avoid it. We are creatures. If you, if you, if you take God's interpretation of reality, we're made things. We're derivative, which means we have limitations. You got to sleep. You got to eat. You have the personality you have, and you can't just change it because you wish it was different. You have the experiences you have or the lack of opportunities you've had, and we're weak. But because we've been discipled that weakness is bad and nobody else is weak, we think it's our little secret that we can't share anybody, share with anybody. And so we spend our time in small groups. Or if you're kind of in the church world, you go to all these things, and it's like everybody has a few two of clubs in their hand, but they won't show it to anybody else. They only show you the high cards, the good stuff. And so we get really lonely in our weakness too. And we wonder, am I the only one who's not where she wants to be spiritually this fall? Am I the only one who wasted a whole summer? Am I the only one who feels captive inside of a personality that I think brings nobody else any joy? Am I the only one who walks into a room and wonders, is there anyone here happy to see me? And so we hide. And the other people around us who feel the same thing feel more lonely in their weakness too because we're all hiding and we think we have to power through it. And we even do this spiritually. And here's the insidious thing. We begin to even the voice of God in our lives sounds like that coach that says, just power through, get it together. Come on. You're not supposed to think about yourself that way. Be outward focused. And one of the biggest problems of all is that weakness is almost a prerequisite for the power of God to be unleashed in your life. And so avoiding weakness ends up becoming avoiding the power of God being unleashed in your life. Power to believe, power to change, power to grow, power to gradually become a different person who's more loving, more available, more free. We avoid weakness and in that we actually avoid power that God is eager to give to the poor and the weak and those who mourn and the hungry. Really quickly, we're not going to turn to these places and, and, and go in depth in them, but these people that Luke is writing to are weaklings. They're the disciples, and you might have grown up thinking, disciples, I want to emulate them, be like those people, but they're not those kind of people depicted in the Gospels. Luke 24, which is the very last chapter before the sequel of Acts. Luke is the first part of this book. Acts is the second. It's chapter two of one book that Luke wrote. The last chapter before what Casey just read is the story of the disciples a few days after Jesus is crucified and they're walking with a man on a road and they don't recognize that this is the resurrected Jesus. They don't see him. They don't recognize him. And Jesus is kind of like in disguise talking to them about why are you so sad? Like, what are y'all talking about? And they said, have you not heard? 
All of Jerusalem's talking about it. The man that we thought was supposed to be the rescuer of the world turned out to be a fraud. He's not who he said he was, and we're, we're in despair. We had our hopes so high. It's like the season you thought Georgia was definitely going to win it, and we blow it in a spectacular way, or every season. That's how they felt, except existentially. And Jesus says, did you not know that the Christ must come and suffer and die and then be raised up on the third day? And he opens up all of the Old Testament and says, see, it's right here. It's always been there. They're weak in their belief. They're weak in their faith. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go therefore and you know, baptize the nations and teach them everything I've commanded you. The verse right before that says they worship Jesus, but some doubted Jesus. That's the climactic moment of the church's birth, and it's shrouded in doubt. Theophilus, this Greek dude that this letter is written to, go back to Luke 1 or read the very first verses Casey read. This guy, he's heard all of these stories before, but Luke, his certainty is waving. It's wavering. There's a lot of uncertainty in Theophilus, this, this probably a recent convert to Christianity, and his faith is wobbly. And weak. One day it feels strong, the next day it feels absent. So Luke felt it necessary to write another orderly account to try to increase his confidence. They are all weak. They are all weak. And on top of all of that, Jesus had been telling them for months by this point, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Some of you are seniors and you had best friends leave last year. Your best friends, they graduated, they left town, and that's just a best friend. And you were worried about what the fall would be like without them here, without a roommate. This is the, the man claiming to be the son of God and the savior and the friend of sinners who's saying, I'm leaving. And in John 14, what he says to them and to us is this. Because they felt like they were going to be orphaned, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. But I will come to you yet in a little while, and I will send the Holy Spirit, the helper, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. But you know him, for he dwells in you, and he will be in you. He will teach you everything that I've taught you. He will remind you, and he will bring you peace. They were scared and they were weak because this Jesus who their entire lives were attached to was about to leave. What do you make of this, by the way? This weird description of Jesus ascending, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible or you're newer to kind of Christianity or hearing about this stuff. This is crazy talk. You're like, what's going on here? Kind of a normal little message. And all of a sudden the guy levitates and goes to heaven with like fire around him and stuff. What's going on here? Is this just a made-up, embellished account? Here's what I think is happening in this description that Luke gives us of, of Jesus' ascension. Luke is very keen to, to, to communicate this to you. Jesus had a very particular mission for which he came to accomplish. Jesus, as you've heard about him, Jesus, as he has shown to us in the Bible, had a very specific mission. It was to accomplish salvation for his people. That was his mission. Not a lot of other stuff. That was it to live a perfect life and to take your imperfect life 
to swap resumes. He takes the consequences of a bankrupt resume and he gives you the most golden resume someone's ever laid eyes on. It is perfect. It is good. It is beautiful. It is sweet in the eyes of God. That's the mission he came to accomplish through his 33 years of life, through his crucifixion, through his resurrection. What do you do when the mission's done? You ever seen those war movies, especially like um, Zero Dark Thirty or The Longest Day that have been around the past few years? You see these war movies, especially the ones that involve special forces. And, you know, these special forces paratroop, uh, parachute in behind enemy lines and they're doing a very specific job. These seals, these rangers are there to kind of cut off the head of the snake or kill the hostage taker, or topple the tyrant. That's it. They do that. They free the hostages or whatever else they have to do. And then what happens after that in all of these movies? You hear chopper blades. And, and some big black hawk flies overhead and lowers to the ground. And that scarred and bloodied seal gets on board and flies off into the sunset. That's how all these movies end. That's what Luke is depicting here. Luke saw this and and these disciples saw this with their eyes. They're saying, this isn't made up. This isn't inspirational. This is history. And as it were, he's saying, we saw the Blackhawk come and land. And this scarred and bloodied redeemer, the savior and friend of sinners got on board. Why? Because he finished the mission. There was nothing left to accomplish. Jesus says in the gospels, If there is a strong man holding people captive, you have to come and bind him up so that the captives can run free. That was his mission, to free you from death, to free you from guilt, to free you from powers much greater than you. Sin is not just something inside of you that we feel tempted by. It is a cosmic force that just destroys us and tackles us and has us enslaved. Someone much bigger than you had to come and cut the head off the snake so that you even had a, had a hope of being friends with your maker again, friends with God again. Jesus did it. Jesus finished it. Jesus left. That's what's being depicted here. This heavenly encounter. He entered the world through supernatural means and he leaves the world through supernatural means. Why? Because he's not bound to natural means. He is God. And it's as if to signal to you and his original disciples, this is the curtain call. I'm not coming back in in this moment. So don't stand around waiting for me. There's work to be done. Here's the point. Here's where this touches ground in our lives, hopefully. If this is true, if you are in fact not abandoned as an orphan, If Jesus hasn't just checked out and said, well, I did the best I could do. Now the ball's in your court. Let's see what you're going to do. If that's not true, if he has accomplished salvation for his people, if he has finished the job, how is this good news? Because he didn't just leave and fly off into the sunset. He says, verse eight, but you will receive power when... The Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he says it again later on in chapter two, when you see that power descending on these weak people. If power, if power to change, to believe, to grow, 
to serve, to impact comes from outside of you. It's not native to you. You shouldn't expect to find it in your heart or conjure it up or grit your teeth and find it within you. But if it is something that is foreign to you and must be given to you, then it's okay to be weak, right? It's okay to be poor if your dad is a millionaire and he loves you, right? It's okay to be weak if God is willing and able to give you the gift of raw power in the form of Jesus' spirit. Jesus leaves and he says, I'm sending one, not God with you, as it was for the 33 years when Jesus had a body and walked this earth, but I'm going to put God in you. The spirit is going to inhabit you, take up residence inside of you. That's the kind of power he's talking about. Power inside of you. That's a gift given to you that God is not expecting you to conjure up on your own. But he says, are you weak? Perfect. Because I have an answer to weakness. And it's the spirit of the resurrected Jesus living inside of you. This is his promise. I get it. Some of you are a little bit lost. You don't, this is not stuff you've heard before or it's not stuff you might be used to. Just sit in your chair and listen to what God says, what he offers you. And consider whether this could ever be true. Hunter Burnett the other day shared a quote with some of us and, uh, from J.D. Greer. He said, if dependence upon God is the objective, weakness is an advantage. If you have a strong God who's looking out for you and has not abandoned you as an orphan and intends to empower you through his very presence himself, weakness is an advantage. Weakness is a catapult to depend on him. It sends you right back to him. Luke says again, you weakling disciples, you, my friends here, me, you will receive. It's a gift. You'll receive it. Not manufacture it, not make it, not discover it on your own spiritual journey, not read about it in a book. You'll receive it. It'll be given to you. Someone else will initiate the process. And it'll be power of Jesus himself. It won't be liquid courage that evaporates as soon as the hangover's over. It won't be earthly power that evaporates as soon as you move on. It'll be an abiding power that remains inside of you. A power to persevere and endure and grow for the long haul. We are not powerful people, but we are weak people acted upon by a superior power. If you're in the physics or science, that's Newton's first law, isn't it? An object at rest will remain at rest unless it's acted upon by an external superior force, right? This podium will not move forever unless it is acted upon. God is saying something similar here in Acts chapter 1. You will not move unless you are acted upon by a power and a grace and a goodness outside of you. You will not change. You will not grow unless God acts upon you, unless power falls upon you. This power, which is a personal power, it is always tethered to him, he himself. This is uh, Horatius Bonner, an old Scottish pastor. He said, the Holy Spirit's work is direct and it is powerful. And it will not rid your, rid your, and, and you will not rid yourself of your difficulties by trying to persuade yourself that his work is all indirect, merely those of a teacher presenting truth to you. Get this. Salvation for the sinner is Christ's work. Salvation in the sinner is the Spirit's work. 
This doctrine is one of unspeakable encouragement to a sinner if he or she knows themselves to be as thoroughly helpless as the Bible says they are. Friends, your weakness is actually good news. If you have this kind of a God, if this kind of a God exists and actually cares about weaklings like you and like me who cannot help themselves. If you want to buy the world's logic, which is ascendant at this moment, it is live by power, live by force. And you will have to be a hermit to survive that kind of a life because weakness will come upon you. And you will hide it and you will not be able to flee it. And it will undo you. But these powers come as the gift of God. So the question to you is, do you think where you are right now is an obstacle to God's work in your life? Or do you see it as the opportunity for God's work in your life? Do you see your hard heart as the reason you can't believe? Or do you see your hard heart as the reason you must believe? You must cry out to one who can soften hard hearts. Do you feel spiritually blind, spiritually dull, just lethargic and groggy all the time? Do you see that as a reason you stay far from God, paying him lip service? Or do you see it as the number one symptom why you need him? Friends, there would be a worn out path in the land between us and the Lord, as it were, if we started seeing our weakness as opportunity, our weakness as strength, because it brings us right back to the one who loves you and is for you and is strong on your behalf. And indwells you. Sinclair Ferguson is uh, the closest thing I would consider beyond my own father to a spiritual father. And um, he has described this. He said there's two types of Christians that he's noticed over the years. Centrifugal Christians and centripetal Christians. Again, we're back in the physics world, which is unfamiliar terrain to me. But centrifugal force, you know what that is. It's like the yo-yo. You spin it around your finger. And that yo-yo, though it is lifeless and has no animating power in itself, starts going for a spin. And that thing is moving. And it's pulling on that string. That's centrifugal force. A superior external power acts upon it and sends it spiraling outward. Centripetal force, by contrast, is the opposite of that. It's like the the water in the bathtub as it's going down the drain. It sucks and slurps everything into itself. It is a force. It is a power that takes everything down with it. Ferguson says that's the two types of Christians he's noticed. Christians who kind of have a centripetal worldview or a centrifugal worldview. When we try to make the Christian life all about me... And getting my needs met or my emotional needs met. Or when, we, when you forget that Pentecost has happened, the spirit has come down and inhabited you if you're a Christian. And you forget that. You will always feel weak in and of yourself and you will never flee to the Lord. And so you will start to manufacture power. And what that will look like is you will always have to maintain a spiritual high. Have you found out yet how tiring that is? It costs so much money to have to go on four or five conferences a year. It takes up so much time of your week when you got to go to five Bible studies a week. You live in a powerless world and you don't know that Jesus has inhabited you by his power, freeing you to change, freeing you to grow. And you think you have to supply all the power. Some of you resent God so much because you think all he's ever done is call you to run and you don't have any energy to run. What he's been saying all along is cast your weakness upon me. 
When you yield your life in the hands of this God, what he does is he spins you out. A power greater external and superior to you starts spinning you around and you get spun out. What does Jesus say to these disciples, these weak, doubting, uncertain, wavering, scared disciples? What does he say? Verse 7, right after Uh, He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what will happen? What happens when the spirit of resurrection gets a hold of your weightless, lifeless life? Weak as it is, what happens when he starts spinning it around and working in you? Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This radiating mission of the renewal of the whole world. Your life will become a blessing to an expanding radius of people. People will know you. Even distant people will hear of you or or have a relationship with you and they'll say something is really different about that person. They're, They're comfortable being publicly weak. Why? They know they're strong. They know God is not as averse to their weakness as they are. They're available for others. They're not always just me and my spiritual life, me and my spiritual life, but they... There's a peaceful confidence that God's love tomorrow is going to be the same as it was today and was yesterday, full throttled. So they're available to be about your problems too, not just always talking about their own. Centrifugal force, it spins you out to bless the world. Centripetal Christians have a tighter and tighter circle of influence and a tighter and tighter circle of blessing. And I know we all feel this, I know we all experience it, but we know the misery of that kind of circling the drain when everything is all about us. Ministries, which ministry you're going to choose, which church you're going to choose is all about you, your habits, your preferences. What would it look like to begin to yield yourself to the greater force? Maybe during this first week of the semester, it might look like praying. If you're someone who prays and asking God to mess up your priorities Maybe you want to be somewhere that does something this, 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 and this way. And maybe he wants you to be at a place where he's finally going to get through to you and persuade you that he's for you and persuade you that there is power available for the taking for weak people. Pray to him to to reorient and recategorize what you're looking for this year, what you intend Maybe it's you stopping having to have the spiritual high and believing that Jesus goes in the valley just as much as the mountaintop. And so it redeems the suffering you're going through right now, the terrible home situation you're dealing with right now, the personal agony you carry. You're now beginning to realize this is a place where God is comfortable walking. So I can be here too, even though it hurts. We end... With these last pieces of this account, these disciples are trying to take all of this in. It's a lot for them to hear, as I imagine it's a lot for us to hear. It's a lot for me to hear tonight preparing this. They're looking at heaven. Jesus has just flown away. The chopper's out of sight, and they're still looking there. And Luke says, there's two men standing there. And he says, men of Galilee, basically, why are you staring at the sky? Go to Jerusalem. As if to say almost playfully, Jesus is gone. Get back to Jerusalem. There's work to do. 
in that moment, you see them redirecting the, the effect and the impact of this power that they now have access to because the Holy Spirit has been unleashed and, uh, and poured out on them. And, and the question is that we end with tonight, the application is, what is this power for? What's the point of it? Is it just so that I can kind of be better off and have just a little bit more emotional stability, a, high, a, you know, a warmer spiritual life? What's the purpose of it? What's the effect of it? He says, stop staring at the sky. Jesus has gone. And he says, go to Jerusalem. And in the same way you saw him go, he will come. John Stott uh, says this. We'll pull it up if we can. He says, the apostles calling was not to be witnesses. It was to be witnesses, not stargazers. The vision that they were to cultivate was not, not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. And it's the same with us. The work of Jesus on the cross, the work of the Spirit in Pentecost, is not just to kind of individually raise the, the low tide into a high tide and to kind of make us feel better about ourselves and to go on our own little agendas. The work of Jesus on the cross and the work of the Spirit is to unleash us on the world as he renews it. When we stand, because we will do like the disciples, we will stand and we will look at heaven and we will make the whole gospel, the whole Bible all about me. And it's as if these men say to us too, what are you doing? Do you not know there was a purpose for your release, for your freedom, for your rescue, for your empowerment? And that purpose lies in Jerusalem for these men, Judea for others. Samaria for others, the ends of the earth for us. And he says, you now have this spirit. You have the spirit of the Messiah in you, the spirit of the friend of sinners, the spirit of the prince of peace. The spirit of the king is in you. So we get to go now into all the ends of the earth and participate in what he's doing. And with a story from Make-A-Wish Foundation, I know you're familiar with what that group is. It's 40 years old next year. It started in Phoenix, Arizona in 1980 with a seven-year-old boy who had always wanted to be a policeman. Uh, some people heard about his desire. He had incurable leukemia and had a few months left to live. And they said, this is a wish we can grant. So the Arizona Highway Patrol put some money together. They got a uniform made about as high as a seven-year-old is. And he rode around all day long as a deputized patrolman with the Arizona State Patrol. I saw a documentary on Make-A-Wish Foundation recently, and the director of it was being interviewed by this guy. And he asked what he thought was an innocent question. And he said, so are there ever any wishes that kids ask for that can't be granted, that you just you don't have the resources to pull together? And I was unprepared for her answer. And especially as a father with three children, I was undone by her answer. And she said... The request we get the most from the kids is, can you make me better? And she said, every time I read it, it tears my heart in two again. Because that's about the only wish we can't grant. Some of you are in here and you have a wish, a desire, a need, a craving to be made alive, to finally know God to finally see inertia and movement in your life, to know what you're here for, to know what he put you here to do. 
And there might be cynicism and you don't even wish anymore. You don't even pray anymore. You don't even ask anymore. Or maybe you didn't know that God is the one person who can answer the wish and make you better and bring healing and bring transformation. Stay tuned because in the next 14 weeks, we're going to see him do that over and over and over and over and over again. As we see this collision of new creation steamrolling what is old and bad and ugly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we all need you to come upon us in power. We need you to move in us. We need you to act upon us. We need you to spin us out, as it were, from our own tight little claustrophobic narcissisms and spin us out into the lives of others that we might be witnesses that there is one who knows me as I am and still loves me. Make these things come true of us. Make your word come alive in us tonight and tomorrow and then semester. We ask this in your name. Amen.